We return to our Bringing Light into Darkness episode with Mike Whitney as he addresses the increasing economic challenges facing the European nations as well as Ukraine as a result of this conflict. You were one of the first people that talked about how the electrical grids and the whole industrial base of Germany and and the West were being trashed due to the blowing up of the Nordstrom and the oil availability and the cutoff from Russian oil. Can you talk a little bit more about now that we're a little bit farther down that road, what the prospect is like? Sure, because what you're talking about is actually quite involved in the hostilities in Ukraine are just part of the picture and why the our European allies are getting more disenchanted with the United States. The war is one thing and the feeling that if anyone is threatened, it's the other European people and the other European countries, not the United States. So that's one thing. Then, there, of course, there's the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, which was Germany's link to cheap energy that will force it to deindustrialize and is greatly impacting its economy. But at the same time, the United States is capitalizing hugely on the sale of uh, liquid natural gas to Europe, which the European leaders feel is very much exploiting the situation that they created. So that's the third thing. And the fourth thing is the fact that the Biden administration passed this Inflation Reduction Act. Well, that Inflation Reduction Act provides over $400 billion to subsidize American industries that we could be buying the product from Europe. In other words, we're providing an unfair economic advantage to our industries and undermining the competitiveness of Europe, which is basically a violation of WTO rules. So there's all kinds of different things that are happening behind the scenes. And in every situation, we see Washington angling for its own benefit over its European allies. And frankly, this is really angering people. And it's a very unsettled situation. But the biggest thing, of course, is still the war, you know, because now the United States, the Biden administration wants to provide these surface to air missiles, the Patriot system, which is our most advanced surface to air missile, along with fighter pilots like F-16s or MiGs or whatever it is they have in the stockpile over there. So now completely rejecting any negotiations with Russia At the same time, they continue up this escalatory ladder. So the war can only get worse. And this war is bad for Europe, not so much for the United States. And don't think they don't notice that. Yeah, the other thing, Mike, is it's so, so difficult as as an American news consumer to, to understand and get at the truth. And I think that's why so many people fall prey to the Russia's bad, U.S.'s good mantra We were told that Russia was using civilian shields, and it turns out to be false that even Amnesty International came out showing that, in fact, it was the Ukrainians that was using civilian shields as a war tactic. Who, under significant political pressure, apologized despite the accuracy of its reports. The August 4th, 2022 Amnesty Report confirmed an earlier UN report from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights that confirmed a pattern of other instances that the Ukrainian army in the Donbass region purposefully put civilians in harm's way as human shields. All of this relatively unreported in the West. Instead, we get regular unconfirmed reports that the Russians are completely disregarding civilian life. And we were told that it was the Kramatorsk railway station strike 
strike that killed over 50 people, and that was immediately blamed on Russia. And yet an honest investigation revealed it was a Ukrainian strike that had caused that deal that killed over 50 people. We were told with absolute certainty that the Buka murders of innocents were Russian calculated executions before any investigation was initiated, much less completed. When now we know the preponderance evidence suggests it was these right-wing neo-Nazi Ukrainian forces that were most likely responsible for these horrific war crimes. Zelensky blamed the recent deaths of Polish citizens in the territory of Poland, the two or three that died on a Russian airstrike well after the evidence poured in to show that it was a uh, anti-ballistic missile from the Ukrainian side. We've been told again and again that the Zaporizhzhia nuclear plant was being dangerously attacked with missile strikes by the Russians who occupy it and have occupied it since very early in this conflict, when instead the rational interpretation would have reflected that and reveal its absurdity. But instead of acknowledging these lies, they just no longer get repeated as much, right? And so they remain in the American consciousness. And then recently, an egregious lie published by CNN was forwarded to me by a very dear friend, a claim by a UN official, Pamela Bratton, that she had made back in October 2022, but then later admitted having no solid evidence to justify her claim on her Russia's alleged rape strategy claims. One media outlet described it this way, the allegations Ms. Patton has brought forward are of a very serious nature, which have the power to shape public discourse around the events in Ukraine. Those statements were widely distributed among media outlets and social media to create a misleading, if not entirely false narrative. She told an AFP reporter, quote, you hear women testify about Russian soldiers equipped with Viagra. It's a clear military strategy, end quote. But less than a month later, the UN official admitted that her words were based solely on some unverified reports disclosed to her in the presence of two Ukrainian officials, admitting that she did not have any solid evidence to substantiate the claims a month after she made them. And then finally, as you mentioned in Kherson, we heard that Russians got routed while the Russians claimed it was really a tactical retreat. We're taking our eye off the ball. We're taking our eye off the real, much more accurate barometer of who's winning and who's losing in this war conflict. The casualty rates, that the unsustainable casualty rates of the Ukrainians, according to all of these sources we've already indicated, clearly indicates that Ukraine is getting their butt handed to them. And we continue to give them more and more military equipment to sustain an unsustainable type of military situation for Ukraine. Let me comment on that for a second, because you're talking about the amount of lies and disinformation in the mainstream media. And you and I have been following this for a long time since Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. If anything, it's gotten a lot worse and the lies are just compounded daily about what's happening there. But we have to keep in mind that the basic spin and narrative that Ukraine is winning in this war has a purpose. And the purpose is to garner public support for the war. And they know that if public Ukraine was what's actually happening and and not prevailing in this uh, conflict, that they would very quickly lose public support. And public support is everything. So there's two wars going on. There's the war in Ukraine and there's the war for public support. And so 
that's the real purpose of propaganda. I would like to say one thing, though, that I think, although you get terrific analysis from people who are more objective-minded in, in analyzing what's going on in Ukraine, I think many of them, almost all of them, are very lame when it comes to big picture type stuff. Like, mm-hmm. what is the function of this? And, and the, the thing I find the scariest or the most concerning is that what we're seeing in Ukraine is a determination on Washington's part to arrest its economic decline by resorting to military power. So that's where we're at in this geopolitical evolution that we've been going through for the last 20 years. We are in a position now where we're not prepared to compete with China, and we're not prepared to compete with Russian natural resources like gas and oil. So we have to go out there and blow up the pipelines. We have to destroy uh, critical uh, infrastructure to maintain our dominant role. And so how is this going to play out? The reason that we're really fighting Russia is because we needed a platform to conduct this war, to drain them, so that we can push our bases into Central Asia, which is going to be the most prosperous region of the next century, the most people buying the most things, the most widgets, and we need to encircle China. And that's why this thing is going to happen simultaneously. This provocation in Taiwan is happening at the same time as Ukraine. It's not a coincidence. The United States is in decline. And so they have figured rather than be a competitive force, they're not going to. They're just going to lower the capacity of these other countries to compete with them. And that means military confrontation. So we should be very concerned about this. This is a decision that's already been made, and this is playing out in real time. Yeah, and I think that's what I really appreciate about your writing is that you are at the forefront of this geopolitical hypothesis that has great merit in my studies namely that the demise of the United States as the unipolar power since World War II, and you have these powers like China and now Russia flexing their muscle and just saying, look, we don't want to mess with the United States, but we also want to have the sovereignty to protect our own national security interests as well. What you're saying, and this is what's so scary to me, is that what the American public don't see is that these neocons see this as an existential threat to their unending wealth accumulation, right? And so they're liable to push this thing and push this thing and push this thing towards a potential nuclear type of deal as well, or close to that edge, because of if they don't, then what ends up is you have a new world in which there are multipolar forces that rival the Western dominance. And we're already seeing some of the the concerns that are expressed by that. The other thing connected to that, in your article, I really found it very interesting, particularly the 100-kilometer-wide no-man's land. Your article juxtaposes that with the North Korean demilitarized zone. Share with us the demilitarized zone differences in length, and then also what you're suggesting or what Helmer is suggesting is that in order to have that national security that Russia demands, where the, the Russian-speaking Donbass people will not be subject to random bombings, you create this buffer zone so that the length of the missiles cannot reach the Russian-speaking Donbass people. And it will in- continue to increase the buffer zone, it will apparently, as the range of these missiles that we're providing them increases. And so this is where you see potentially the exit ramp, so to speak, 
that Russia has an end game, that this is what will protect their national security interests. And at the same time, their interest is not to take over Kiev. Their interest is not to take over all of Ukraine, as indicated by the original size of their armed forces as well. Can, can you elaborate a little bit more on that, Demeltra? Sure. Um, the thing is, is that by showing his unwillingness to compromise and to negotiate and use diplomacy to end this war, President Zelensky of Ukraine is forcing the Russians to impose a military settlement. And that military settlement is going to have to protect its national interests. And its main national interest is making sure it's out of the range of fire of the missile systems and artillery that Ukraine is getting from the United States and from NATO. So that means that if they get longer range missiles and longer range artillery systems, then the DMZ is going to have to expand. And that means also that there will be no final peace settlement. There will only be an armistice. There will be kind of a resolution that either side not continue the bombardment of the other side, but it won't. there won't be any negotiated settlement. I think the Russians realize this now because there's no compromise on the other side. Now, you can say logically that if Zelensky had the Ukrainian country and his people in mind, he would try to work out some sort of peaceful resolution because, like John Mearsheimer, the foreign policy analyst said, the country is just being wrecked. We can see that here's a guy saying we're going to take back all of our native soil before February 24th, the invasion. And in reality, 60% of all his critical infrastructure, the power grid, the water, the, all the systems that keep the society and the civilization operating are being shot down one by one. And so, I mean, you can hardly say that we're defending the honor of Ukraine when there's no Ukraine left, when tens of millions of people are fleeing into Europe, when the energy grid is destroyed. You know, it's impossible or it's silly to talk about the independence of Ukraine and recapturing all the soil that is now occupied by Russian troops when, in fact, your civilization is being ground into dust. I mean, basically, they are returning to a Stone Age wastelands by continuing this war against a power that is much greater than their own. So if Zelensky honestly cared about the Ukrainian people who are now fleeing by the millions into Europe and to Russia, he would do something to have a diplomatic settlement so it doesn't end being what it is. Because look at what the end game really is. If you have a DMZ, Ukrainian rump state that's created in the West is going to be totally separated from the Black Sea. So they're not going to have any access to their main ports that are going to allow them to sell their wheat and their other goods. So commercially, they're going to be entirely dependent on their allies in the West that aren't going to care anything about them except arming them to the teeth so they can continue to hassle Russia. But it's the industrial centers are in the East. So Russia is going to control all of that. They're going to control all access to the Black Sea. And Ukraine will become an irrelevant spot on the map. Mm -hmm. So this is what Zelensky is doing. It's, it's cruel primarily to the Ukrainian people who are seeing their civilization ground into dust. And this really goes, Mike, without even mentioning the fact that so much of the military and financial aid going to Ukraine is totally unaccounted for and is disappearing into somebody's pockets as well. The last thing I wanted to ask you to comment on is Paul Craig Roberts talks about the naivety of Putin to be sitting there and dealing with the United States and the West. Who have been absolute and continuously disingenuous diplomatic brokers. They refuse to acknowledge 
and follow through on the Minsk agreement. Yet time and time again, Putin goes down this legalistic pathway. At one point, Paul Craig Roberts, I think, says rather appropriately that after the years go by, and we can really judge this more objectively, I think what we'll see, he says, is that Russia was an honest international law broker, and he was dealing with people that were not, people that were never in it for a compromise or any kind of real diplomatic solution and just pretended to be so to mislead the American public. In fact, the post-coup president Poroshenko even has admitted publicly that Ukraine was never going to abide by the Minsk agreement and rather used it as a shield in order to build up its offensive capabilities in the region under the guise of a peace settlement that they were never going to abide by. And certainly the United States was well aware of this strategy, making us an accomplice to this diplomatic deceit. Can you speak to that as we tend to wrap up this? Uh... Yeah, that's a great question. I have, first of all, I should say I have the greatest respect for uh, Paul Craig Roberts. I've interviewed him a number of times. He's really a stand-up guy honest, straightforward in his views, and never you know, tries to dodge the issues or the questions. But I fundamentally disagree with him on this issue. He thinks Putin should have gone in guns blazing and put the hammer down and just resolved this issue, gone straight to Kiev or whatever, and ended this thing quickly, swiftly, and which would have cost a lot more civilian lives and probably Russian lives at the same time. But if you look at the evolution of this thing, it has really turned out in Putin's favor. He went in with basically an expeditionary force, and as they raised the ante, he has raised the ante as well. But in the interim, what has happened? Well, the media has been overwhelmingly Russophobic, anti-Russian. They've canceled uh, athletes and politicians and oligarchs and everything. And there's been this real hatred directed at Russia, and they've seen the amount of vitriol and hatred towards their country. This has garnered huge public support for the war in Russia. So now the Russians understand that there really is an existential crisis that is being played out in the war. This has given Putin the flexibility to increase his forces and do what Paul Craig Roberts thought should have been done originally. But he didn't have the political support. He didn't have the people behind him. He couldn't have gone in with five or 700,000 people and brought public support behind him. I think he would have had, you know, 25% public support for that sort of operation in the beginning, whereas now he has over 80% public support. People want this because they feel that Washington, they feel that media, they feel the West hates them and wants to destroy their country. And that is build public support. Yeah, I think that I agree with you. I don't agree with the, his critique of Russia, although he does make some points that why do you provide Europe with all that oil and gas when they're fighting you, is what he says. So that does tell you that from the very get-go, Putin was not interested in turning off the oil and gas or using it in any political way. Or in This precisely flies in the face and reveals the false propaganda messaging that was inundating U.S. public living rooms, that Russia was weaponizing its oil, weaponizing trade. Well, you should remember that during the entire Cold War, the Russians never turned on or turned off the spigots to impose you know, blackmail on the West, even though it was confronting Europe and the United States and different places around the world. There were conflicts in Africa and South America, every place else, but they never used their fuel to fight back. So they're opposed to sanctions. They're very much 
supportive of free market principles, and that's why they're not going to go along with this gas cap either. But, you know, it's entirely uh, the United States' choice to blow up or sabotage the Nord Stream pipeline, which is a way of preventing European and Russian integration economically, which the United States fears. Well, listen, I just want to remind folks that we've been visiting with Mike Whitney, the distinguished investigative reporter. His most uh, recent articles can be found on the UNS Review, one dated November 25th, 2022, Endgame Ukraine, Putin's Battle Plan, another a few days later on November 29th, 2022, Putin's Remedy, a fragmented toothless Ukraine separated by a 100-kilometer-wide no-man's land as a potential military solution that may be on the horizon in the next month or so, as you've indicated. Just to be clear, it sounds like not just you, but McGregor, Ritter, this freezing of the ground is a prerequisite to this imminent military event that should be occurring sometime within the next 30 days or maybe 60 days or so. Anyhow, Mike, thank you so much for all your good work. We'll continue to follow your work and thank you for your analysis. Hey, thank you for having me, Pedro. I appreciate it. Okay, very good. I wanted to end the show with a short tribute to my mom on her 92nd birthday, one that she's no longer with us to share. I alluded earlier to the fact that today, December the 2nd, is my mom's birthday and she passed away. I wanted to end the show with some excerpts from the eulogy I shared back on October the 2nd, 2021, following mom's death from a non-COVID-related condition. In preparing those words, I thought it best to memorialize my mom by sharing lessons I learned from my mom that were generally experiential. In her memory, I wanted to share a few such experiences and did so in this eulogy, implying what they taught me. Growing up in a material country, I can remember asking my mom at a very young age, how much was I worth? She did not hesitate in saying I was worth more than all the money in the world. That kind of blew my mind at the time learning I must be pretty important. I think about that from time to time, and I am sure it was my mom that taught me that all life is priceless and there is no such thing as a lesser human being. She radicalized me to care about others way before I ever started caring about others. Growing up, I can remember that my room in our house was downstairs in the basement adjacent to a large recreation room and that is where our black and white TV was. My dad called the TV an idiot box and he laid down the rule that me and my sister could only watch three shows during the school week. My dad often traveled and I I think it was during one of those occasions when I was about 13 or so that my mom woke me from asleep about 10 p.m. and called me into the TV room and said, hey, I want you to check this out. I think it was the Johnny Carson show or the Dick Cavett show, and she wanted me to hear this woman who was singing on TV. My first thought was it was pretty cool to be up past my bedtime, and it did not count as one of my three shows. But I also remember being curious as to why my mom had insisted I checked this woman singing out. As I started listening, I remember thinking, is this woman singing or is she dying? I was not very impressed and asked her, Mom, who is this? She said it was Janis Joplin. My mom was a creative artist and unlike me, knew art. 
in new talent when she saw it. Slowly, I did learn what an amazing talent my mom was as she became one of the leading modern dance choreographers in the Washington, D.C. area, and I was forced to attend most all of her dances, including ones at Lisner Auditorium, and remember as an older adolescent helping her out with the lighting at a tree sculpting dance she was doing down there in Georgetown, and in fact, where the actual funeral and eulogy that occurred. I can remember growing up making my mom and dad ashtrays out of clay. I'm talking back in second or third grade. You know, we just took a lump of clay, poked a few holes in it, and then glazed it over with some type of colored substance. And voila, you put it into a kiln and you had a horrific looking ashtray. But my mom just loved it. She loved these things that when I made them for her in school like that, or when I wrote her a card, not a, a store-bought card, but a homemade card, she just flipped. She never wanted gifts from a store, but she could die for a handmade memento. Anyhow, I just wanted to talk to my mom, and we'll see you next week. Don't be late.